We are uh, in between series right now. Tim just finished the, the big revelation series that we've been tackling for a while. And Jeff preached on Mary and Martha last week. And they said, Jared, you can preach on whatever you want. So if you know me, we're going to be in the Old Testament this morning. I just can't help myself. And uh, today's sermon is titled, Dig Your Ditch. This is uh, a, a passage of scripture that I've never preached on before, something I was just reading in my own devotionals, and I came across this story, and I said, this, this story is crazy. This is fascinating. I want, I want to preach on this. So we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3. If you have your Bibles or smartphones and you want to follow along, we're going to read almost that whole chapter this morning, so a good, good solid chunk of Old Testament scripture. But before we get into the, the passage itself, I need to give you a little bit of background because I recognize that not everybody is as passionate about the Old Testament as I am. And I figure you'll just catch up eventually. You know, God will get you there. So let me give you a little bit of background because you need to understand some of the geopolitical climate type stuff that's happening. There is a panda bear in... In the fourth row, I just, <laughs> that just threw me for a minute. I, no, it's all good. We can be buddies. We, we're, we're good. We're good. It's like blast back to junior high days. All right. Um, anyways, geopolitical. Where, well, okay, so here's what's going on. This is a map of Israel. And uh, Israel is a bit of a moving target in the Old Testament when we talk about Israel. See, you could be talking about the person Israel because Jacob gets renamed into Israel. So sometimes when you're reading Israel, you're talking about the person. You could be talking about the single kingdom of Israel where Saul was the first king and then he passes the kingship to David and then Solomon takes over. But really that nation, that, that united kingdom of Israel only lasts for those three kings. And then when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes into power, uh, he gets the nation split. He splits the nation. So Rehoboam ends up taking the southern part of the kingdom, and Jeroboam takes the northern part. So most of the Old Testament, when you read about Israel, you're actually reading about the northern kingdom, that top part where the capital was Samaria. And the southern kingdom they called the kingdom of Judah. And that's, incidentally, where Jerusalem is. And this causes all sorts of issues, especially since most of the Torah required them to go to the temple. But if you lived in the northern kingdom, you didn't have a temple. So there's just a lot of uh, conflict that comes from the divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And we need to know where both of those are for today's story. There's actually two more kingdoms that we need to kind of put on our radar. And they're on this map. The, the bottom right hand here, we have Moab. Moab is just east of the Dead Sea. Um, one of the most famous people from Moab was probably Ruth. If you remember Ruth the Moabitess, she marries Boaz and enters the lineage of Christ. And then we also have the kingdom of Edom, which is south of the Dead Sea. And really the kingdom of Edom sweeps all the way around. It's just a large piece of desert. It's kind of the land nobody wanted, truthfully, down there in Edom, um, except there is a, a a really a historical wonder called Petra in Edom. And if you've ever had a chance to go there or get a chance to go there, you should go there because it will blow your mind. A uh, little bit of a tangent. We're talking, talking about a Horizon U Holy Land trip. 
And if that happens, we're going to go through Edom and Moab and the Dead Sea and all of the places that are in today's story will be on that trip. So keep your ears tuned for that down the road. But let's get into our scripture today. We are going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. It's going to introduce some people to us, so pay attention. Here we go. It says that Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. And he got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Now, right away, this is why some people hate the Old Testament. <laughs> because they're like, you just threw five names at me and I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> so let me unpack who these people are and what's going on. Today's story is, is mainly around Joram. Joram is the son of Ahab. Now, Ahab was one of the kings of Israel, the kings of the northern kingdoms. And he was known for his wickedness. He was a wicked, evil king. Uh, his wickedness was only surpassed, perhaps, by that of his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel and Ahab, they were no good. They went around, they set up Baal, uh, idols to Baal and idols to Asherah, these foreign uh, Canaanite gods. And then they actually started a campaign where they went out and they hunted and they killed all of the prophets of Yahweh that were in the northern kingdom. And so God did not like those two, right? They were, they were known as wicked, evil kings. Now, Ahab has died, and his son, Joram, or some translations say Jehoram, it's kind of a longer version of his name, he takes over. And the scripture tells us he's not as bad as mom and dad. Like, they had a legacy. Everybody knew his mom and dad were no good. And they say, Joram's not as bad. But he's also not a saint. All right, so the next verse tells us this, says, Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from him. So basically they're saying, listen, he's still not a very good king. He's still uh, promoted idolatry. He's still carrying the legacy of the northern kingdom of being uh, a kingdom stuck in perpetual sin uh, and not really ever honoring God as a nation. And so that's one of our main characters this morning, Joram. Now we get introduced to some more people. Let me read through this, and then we'll, I'll unpack it again. Verse 4 says, Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So the scripture doesn't go into a lot of detail here, but it's safe to say that the whole conflict of this chapter of basically evolves around taxes. Right? This, this nation of Moab, where they were being taxed. They had this, this two-generation-old agreement where Moab would pay tribute, and then there would be peace between Israel and Moab. But now Joram's father, Ahab, has died, and Moab has decided that they don't want to pay that tribute anymore. They're tired of giving Israel all of those sheep. And if you know anything about ancient Israel, sheep are kind of a big deal. All right? And so, uh, Joram is going to respond to this decision of Moab. Verse 6 says, So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria 
And he mobilized all of Israel. Again, that's the northern kingdom. And he sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against him? And Jehoshaphat replies, he says, I will go with you. I am as you are and my people as your people. My horses as your horses. But what route should we take to attack? He asked. They said, Let's go through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah, and don't miss this last little part, and the king of Edom. Okay, so I said, well, pause. Let me unpack this. We now have four kings in play in this story. Oh, look at how good those little guys look. So here's our four kings, all right? And let me just get us all on the same page here. We have Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, you may know Jehoshaphat. There's a, sometimes people would, back in the day, they used to say, holy Jehoshaphat. I think you, you probably have to be over 70 to get that one. But like, people used to say that. All right, kids, just, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, but he was, a, he was a righteous king. He was a holy king. And, and he got that nickname, holy Jehoshaphat. Then you have Joram. He's a piece of work. He's from the northern kingdom. You know, bad mom and dad had a rough childhood, uh, and he just really never followed God, and he got this whole band together. And then we have the king of Edom, and he kind of just came in in the last verse. They don't really tell us a lot about him. They don't tell us what they had to do to convince him to come. They just go, oh, by the way, the king of Edom is here. Um, one commentator I read, he said this. He said, the king of Edom has an inferior status, underscored in Second Kings 3, by the fact that he has neither dialogue, actions, nor even a name. We don't, they don't even give this guy a name. And then most likely this is because Edom wasn't known for kings. Uh, most of the time in scripture when it talks about Edom, it'll say a chieftain. Or maybe I like to think of him as a warlord. He's the hired muscle. You know, they went down there and they, just, they, they rallied up the boys and said, all right, we're going to get the king of Edom. And we're going to all come together and we're going to go. We're going to go talk to Misha, the king of Moab. And so this is the motley crew of this story. Uh, these are the three kings coming to confront Moab. Now, did you notice how Jehoshaphat responded to Joram's request for help? Because it stood out to me. When I heard what he said, I was a bit surprised because of the character of Joram. But Jehoshaphat quickly said, I will go with you. I am as you are. My people will be as your people and my horses are as your horses. He said, I'm in right away and quickly. Now, I think when we look at the life of Jehoshaphat, we realize that he had a blind spot. He had a weakness. And it was his weakness that he always made the wrong kind of friends. See, earlier in Jehoshaphat's life, he went to battle with Joram's father, Ahab. They fought together. Ahab died in that battle, and Jehoshaphat barely got away. And God the whole time told him, don't go. And then later, Ahab's other son comes to him and says, I got this great plan. We're going to build a bunch of boats. Can you finance this? God says, don't do it, Jehoshaphat. He goes, I'm in. Yeah. They build all these boats. They sink at sea. And so now this is the third time in Jehoshaphat's life where someone in Ahab's family has come to him and said, hey, I think we should go to battle. Are you with me? And Jehoshaphat goes, I'm in. 
Let's, my, my horses are your horses. Let's go. Uh, Jehoshaphat has this soft spot for getting pulled into bad situations with people he shouldn't be with. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He's, he warns us. He's actually warning the church of Corinth because they did this too. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Now, I don't care whether it's 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, or yesterday. This is a timeless truth, right? There is a difference between befriending someone who believes something different than you. Like Jesus was friends with sinners all the time, right? But there's a point when that friendship becomes toxic and it begins to pull you into situations and places that you do not want to be in. It begins to draw you and suck you into sin. You know, in fact, my, my parents are here, and uh, my pop used to tell me that the thing he prayed for most for me when I was a young man was that I would find godly friends because he knew the power friends have in your life to influence you one way or the other. And now that I have a six-year-old, actually, no, he's seven. Yesterday was his, or uh, Friday was his birthday. And so I have a seven-year-old, and I'm watching his friends, and I see how true this is. He starts to sound like them. He starts to talk like with them. He starts to want the things they want. And so the power of friendships is, is significant in our lives. And we need to be aware of this for our children and, and for ourselves. Okay? And so Jehoshaphat, he has gotten caught up again in this mess because of his quickness to trust Joram and go to battle. I'm sure nothing's going to go wrong. Right? Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. They had no water in the middle of the desert. This is not a good place to be, people. Uh, this is an actual photo from the deserts of Moab. There's nothing there. And they're stuck out there with these massive armies and no water. The closest source of water in Moab is the Dead Sea. And if you did manage to get there, you couldn't drink any of it. All right? So they are stuck out there. And you have to just picture Jehoshaphat walking around in the evening with his head in his hand. And he's going, how did I get here again? Right? And now this time, he's not just responsible for his own life. But the whole army that's with him, when you are in the desert with no water, this is a matter of life or death. Because in the desert, water is life. And so this is actually more serious than it might first sound when you read that verse. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a life or death situation. But sometimes they happen fast. They're unexpected. And they usually require some sort of immediate reaction. If you don't do something right now, it's going to go from bad to worse. So in this mess, in this problem, the first king to speak up is, oh, good old Joram. And he is going to speak up and he is going to let these kings know what he's thinking. He says this. He says, what? What? exclaimed the king of Israel. What? said Joram. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands 
of Moab. Oh, how this is a sign of the kind of man that Joram is, right? The pressure is on. They're in a dire straits. And his first gut instinct is to blame God. Like, the Lord did this. This is the blame game. The whole reason they're out there is Joram. He gathered them all together. This is, this is his war. He's the reason they're in the desert. But now that things are bad, he wants to blame God. He says, oh, the Lord has called us three th kings together. He wants to kill us. Huh. Well, maybe before we're too hard on Joram, we ought to realize that we're all susceptible to this. That there are times where life starts to go off the rails and it is so easy to look up and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting this happen to me, God? Right? To sit back and say, Lord, this, this must be, this must be your fault. But really, it's the ramifications of the choices that they made that brought them there. But now we're going to look at Jehoshaphat. Because even though he was a man who kept the wrong kind of friends, he was still a godly man. And how he responds in this moment is a testimony of his character. Look at verse 11. So Jehoshaphat asks, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we might inquire of God? And this is how we should respond when life is falling in around us. Let us go and seek God. Let us go and find someone who knows the ways of the Lord and talk to them. Let us ask someone who understands the ways of God well and seek their wisdom. And so verse 11 says that an officer of the king of Israel speaks up and he says, Elisha, son of Shaphat is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat says, ah, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom all go down to talk with Elisha. Now you have to picture Elisha seeing these three kings coming his way. And he knows the king of Joram because he knows his parents, right? And so this is what Elisha says in verse 13. It says, he looks at Joram, and he says to Joram, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father. Go to the prophets of your mother. You see, Elisha remembers that it was his parents that went around and killed all the prophets of Yahweh. And he still has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder for that, right? And so he's letting Joram know what he thinks about it. Now, certainly Joram will respond with maturity and integrity. Let's see what he says. No, the king of Israel answered. It was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. So you're sticking with that one. <laughs> Good job, buddy. So again, he's blaming the Lord. But Elisha sees right through this. In verse 14, Elisha says, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. And he recognized Jehoshaphat's righteousness. 
and it made a difference. One person standing up for the right thing can make a difference. But now here is where it gets a little fun. Elisha looks at the three kings and says, bring me a harpist. Bring me a harpist. Some translations say, bring me a minstrel. But I honestly have no idea what a minstrel is. Um, I think basically what he's asking for is he's saying, bring me a worship leader. Bring me a worship pastor, right? I cannot deal with you right now. I need someone to come and play some worship music. Put on the Caleb, all right? This is too much for me right now. I got these three kings in front of me. Bring me a worshiper. Now, there's something that happens when we make space for worship in the middle of stress, right? Worship has the ability to calm our soul, to realign us to the Lord, to make us listen to what's being said around us and to invite us in to the chorus of praise. There is supernatural power in worship. Things that I cannot explain. When King Saul was tormented by a demon, he said to David, come and play your harp. And David would come play his harp and the demon would leave. By what power can worship cause demons to flee? Or in the New Testament, Paul and Silas, they literally sing their way out of prison. It says they get together, they start singing hymns and songs to the Lord and an earthquake comes and the doors fly open and they just sing their way right on out of jail. Psalm 22.3 says this, it says, God inhabits the praises of his people. God inhabits the praises of his people. And that word inhabits in Hebrew literally means enthrones. God sits, his presence rests in kingship upon the praises of his people. So this morning we sang raise a hallelujah. And when we raise a hallelujah, God's presence is enthroned in the worship of his people. And where the presence of God is, the power of God is. When God's presence is there, hope is there. When God's presence is there, he can change you. He can change the world around you. The power of God is unleashed. And lastly, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that sometimes praise is a precursor to victory. Think about the battle of Jericho, right? They march around, they sing, and they praise, and then the victory comes. And so Elisha said, bring me a worship leader. Play for me. Let me see what God is going to do. And look at verse 15. This is what happens. It says, and it came about that when the musician played, the hand of God, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. They came to him with a question. They wanted to ask this man of God for help. He said, bring me a worshiper. The worshiper came. The worshiper played. The hand of the Lord came upon Elisha and a word of God was brought forth and God himself speaks. And this is what God says. He says, Make this valley full of trenches. What? Did I read that right? 
Make this valley full of ditches. Wait, the worshiper came. Elisha had the hand of God on him. They were ready to get an answer about water. They thought they knew what was going to happen, and God looked at them and he said, Nope. Get your shovel. Start digging. <laughs> Make this valley full of ditches. Now, you have to really picture what God is asking them to do. They are in the middle of a desert, people. <laughs> they were tired. They were thirsty. They were stressed. They thought they were going to die. They needed an answer from God. They were desperate to know what he wanted them to do. Oh, Lord, we will do anything. But you know when it happens, when we ask God what to do, and he tells us what to do, and then immediately without fail, we start to question what he said. Right? You see, nobody likes to dig ditches. <laughs> I don't care who you are. Nobody likes to dig ditches. When I was a young man, I worked for my father's propane company for a while. And uh, he would get these new customers. So they'd go out with a boom truck, and we would deliver a propane tank and set it out in a field. And then he would look, and there would be the house over there, and he'd hand me my shovel. And he would say, Jared, I need a ditch. I need a ditch from that tank to that house, about this deep. And then he would hop in the truck, and he'd drive away. And when he came back, he'd want his ditch dug. <laughs> I hated digging ditches. Nobody likes digging ditches. You know, I shared that story in the first service, and one of the old fellers came up to me and said, why didn't your dad ever buy a, a trencher? And I said, oh, he did the day I quit. And I went to him, and I said, Dad, why didn't you buy a trencher when I worked here? It would have been so much better. And he goes, I didn't need to buy a trencher. I had you. Oh, my goodness. So God spoke to these kings. And he said, I want you to make this valley full of ditches. And right away, they begin to question what God said. Well, how many ditches do you need, Lord? How big of a ditch do you need, Lord? How wide of a ditch do you need, Lord? How deep of a ditch? Can someone else dig the ditch, Lord? Can you dig the ditch for me, God? But this is the truth of this passage. We have to dig our own ditches. The church can't dig your ditch for you. Your spouse can't dig your ditch for you. Your pastor's not going to dig your ditch for you. There are times where God comes to us and he says, you want water? You want my blessing? Then you need to prepare yourself to receive them. And this is how we grow in our faith. There are 10 talent people and five talent people, and one talent people. We don't all have the same size ditch, but we all have the same shovel. And God says, dig, dig that ditch. And what God's trying to do here is he is trying to increase their capacity. So can you picture the kings? They're, they're asking God, well, God, how much water are you going to send? And he's saying, how much ditch are you going to dig? We're going to run out of ditch before he runs out of water. Sometimes this is what God wants to do. He wants to increase our capacity. Whatever we dig, he's going to fill. And so we ask of God, 
we want more, God, I want more, I want more. And he says, dig your ditch, right? God responds to capacity. Think of it this way. When God blew life into the lungs of Adam, if he blew more air than the capacity of his lungs could handle, he would have killed him. And so, yes, these kings and these armies, they were tired. They were thirsty. They were stressed. And deep down, they wanted someone else to dig these ditches. But they were also desperate. So they're going to dig. Dig these ditches. Verse 17, this is what Elisha says. He's speaking for God. And he says, this is what the Lord says to you. You will see neither wind nor rain. Yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. Because this is an easy thing for the Lord. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Oh, in church, I think that this is our problem. It is too easy to underestimate God. We evaluate and we think, oh, God can do whatever he can do based off what we perceive our capacity to be. With God, his capacity is infinite. But we're quick to think, oh, my ditch is this big. Oh, this is all I can handle. Oh, God, if you would just give me this, if you would just give me this much, God, then I would be happy. But all the while, God is up there saying, don't you know? I have such a bigger plan happening here. If only you could realize, if only you could see what I am doing. And church, I think this is our problem. We under-ask. We under-ask a God who loves to over-deliver. That's the nature of God. And we under-ask. We ask too little. These three kings, they came to Elijah with their heads and their hands asking for water. And they thought they were asking for a great thing. But Elisha says, no, no, no. This is an easy thing. This is an easy thing for God. So I don't know this morning what your ask is of God. What has you stressed out? Will you feel like, oh, God, if this was only the one thing you could help me with. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your marriage. But whatever it is, let me remind you that it's our nature to under-ask a God who loves to over-deliver. Andy Stanley, one of my favorite preachers, he says it this way. He says, God often showcases his power on the stage of human weakness. You see, it's in those moments when we're just coming with our, with our little ask to the Lord and we have our shovel in our hands and we're saying, God, you just tell me where to dig, Lord. And I will do it and I will dig. It's in those moments, in our broken moments, in our weak moments, where God loves to show up bigger than we could ever imagine. Verse 17 says this. This is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you and your cattle and your other animals will drink because this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. But don't stop there. Verse 18 he will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree. You will stop up all the springs and you will ruin every good field with stones. In the morning, it was the hour of the morning sacrifice. The water showed up. The water arrived. Water pouring in from the west from Edom. A flash flood that filled the valley with water. 
I went with the message translation here because they, they use that term flash flood, and I get my head around that. But in the Hebrew, we're actually not sure how God did it. It's not really clear. Some people think that the water may have come up from under the trenches, which they dug. So you hope you dug deep enough because the water rose up. Other people think that, yeah, it was like a flash flood that came in because sometimes the desert's like a big bowl, just and water rushes in. We're not really sure. And this is one of my favorite things about God. You know, when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, one of the times, only one time, when he heals one of uh, the blind men, he takes mud and he spits in it. And then he wipes it on his eyes. Do you remember this story? This always perplexed me. So I was like, I'm going to figure out why Jesus spit in the mud. And I went and I got every commentary I could find. I went and found all my big theology books. And I read everything I could find. And you know what I found? We don't know. <laughs> like nobody knows why Jesus spit in the mud. Nobody knows. But I think that's exactly the point. Like, we never know how God is going to do what he's going to do. He keeps us guessing all the time. Maybe it's a flash flood. Maybe the water is going to come out of the ground. I don't, maybe it's just going to magically fill somehow just with water. Maybe he's going to spit. I don't know what Jesus is going to do, and I can't tell you what he's going to do. Sometimes they come, you come to me, people come to me and say, Pastor, I want to know this. Like, how is God going to do this in my life? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what God's going to do. He keeps us guessing. But we know his character. We can rely on the character of God. Now look what happens. Verse 21. Ooh. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. And so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining out on the water. Every man just feels like that sometimes. Like everybody's against me, right? And they look out and they see the sun shining on the water in their desert where there not, should not be water. They know this. It's their desert. And they look out and they see the sun shining on the water. And so naturally, they make some conclusions. Verse 22. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red. It looked like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings, they must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder Moab. You see, they knew that these three unlikely kingdoms had joined against them. Israel, Judah, and Edom. And when they looked out that morning and they saw this valley full of trenches <laughs> filled with red liquid, they thought it was blood. They figured, oh, they fought against each other. Israel hates Judah and Edom. They just went after each other, and they're all dead. And they literally say, now to the plunder, which means let's go get their stuff. And so then I could just picture them. The whole army's just skipping out there, la, 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 because they just think they're all dead. They're just going to walk out and take all their weapons and take all their goods and take all the plunder for them because they figured that it was done already. But what they did not know was that God was working in the background. See, this is what I call a background miracle. A background miracle is where God's doing something behind the scenes. Nobody asked him to do it. Nowhere in this story did the kings come to Elisha and say, will you give us victory over Moab? They never asked for it. 
All they asked for was water. But God was doing something bigger than they could even imagine or understand. The whole time that they were digging ditches, they thought they were digging them for water alone. And yes, God gave them the water that they asked for, but he had plans that were so much bigger in mind. The ditches that they dug led to the victory that they needed. God was working in the background the whole time. And the problem was that they came with a vision that was too small. They underasked of God. And so God responded knowing what it would take to make them ready for what he wanted to do. And it sounded crazy at the time. Dig ditches in this valley? I mean, he basically says, put a hole in this hole. But God's ways are higher than our ways. And his plans are better than our plans. And verse 24 says, when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, of course the Israelites rose up and fought them. They were arrested. They had water. They were ready to go. <laughs> and the Israelites invaded the land and they slaughtered the Moabites. And God gave victory to them on that day. So let me leave you with two questions to think about this week as you think about this crazy story from the Old Testament. The first question is this. What might you be under-asking of God in your life? What might you be under-asking of God in your life? And the second question would be this. What can you do to deepen your trench of faith, to deepen the trench of faith in your life. God's given us all the same shovel. He's called us to go out and dig so that we can be ready when he wants to do something great. So what can we do to deepen the trenches of faith in our life? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this fun, wild story in the Old Testament. Thank you, God, that even though we have such little faith and we're notorious for coming and under-asking of you and underestimating you, that you are always working in the background. And that even though we never know what you're going to do, God, we can rely on your character to be kind and to be for us. And so, Lord, I pray for this church that you will empower us to be kingdom-minded, that we might in our families, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our jobs, that we might represent you well in all that we do. Increase our capacity, Lord Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org.